2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul writes, and he says, Would to God that you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The Bible tells us in the New Testament book of 1 John that God is love. That love is an unchangeable part of his sovereign person. That is that love isn't what he does, but it's who he is. That's part of his person and you can't separate it from him because it's who he is. God is love. Now, one of the great inseparable characteristics of love is that love seeks to give. We all know the verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so the love that is described is God's love, and it's manifested in his giving. That is the giving of his son. And so a characteristic of love is that it seeks to give. And the type of love that God is, is such that when he's done giving, he gives some more. Just this week in my own personal devotion times, I read twice in the Psalms that the psalmist, it happens in Psalm chapter 50 and then it happens again in chapter 116, that the psalmist considering and thinking about all that God gives and all that God has, what can we give back to God in return? And twice God says, what are you going to give to me? And God says, if you want to give me something, I'll tell you what you can give me. He says it in Psalm 50. He says, give thanks for all that I've done for you and then call upon me in the day of trouble and I'll deliver you. And then it goes on to change his themes completely. No, 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 Lord, you, I want to know what I can do for you. And you said, you want to do more for me. Again, in Psalm chapter 116, it's the same exact thing. What shall I render unto the Lord for all that he's done for me? And the answer is thanksgiving, gratitude. That's what God wants. And that we would call upon him and put our trust in him. And so the love of God is such towards us that he is constantly desiring to give. That's what he wants. Now, for you and I, one of the highest distinguishing marks that God is in our life and that he's at work within our life is that we have within us then this characteristic of love. If God is love and God is in our life, then love is something that will be manifested in our life. Jesus said it this way. He said that all men will know that you're my disciples by your love one towards another. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it says that the fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence within the life of a believer is love. And it's singular. And the rest of those words are secondary. The joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the meekness, and all on down that list. But the, 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 the true character of a person who knows God is that the love of God is in their life. And so when God comes into a life, the love of God is manifested in that life in two ways. It's manifested in that person having a love for God, reciprocating the love that they've received. 
And secondarily, a love for people, a love for man that is both to the lost and to the saved. Now, the Apostle Paul, in many ways, is held up for us in the New Testament as an example of a man that possessed this love in a very great way. Paul had a deep love for God, and he had a deep love for Christians and for the churches. And this love was the reason why he did what he did. It was out of a love for God that he was committed to the well-being of the churches. And it was out of a love for the churches that he endured the hardships that he had within his life. Now, in the years since Paul had left Corinth, at the time that he wrote the letter that we're studying here tonight, there was something that had happened in Corinth that, that had caused the church to become threatened, that had caused God's best interest or God's best intent for that church and the church's best interest for itself to be threatened. And so Paul, in this part of the letter, has gone into a severely aggressive defense mode in dealing with the issue at hand that has brought a threat to the churches. He begins by saying there in verse one, would to God that you would bear with me a little bit in my folly. I am so upset about the things that are going on in your midst and the potential damage that they could be doing among you that I'm going to get a little bit foolish in the way that I talk to you for a little while. And then before I even do it, I'm asking you to forbear it. Just, just bear with me in this thing because I'm going to say things to you that I would never say to another living soul. Things that should never come out of my mouth are going to come out of my mouth or out of my pen because of the threat that these men that have come into Corinth have caused unto you. So bear with me in it. Notice that he says in verse two, he says that I'm jealous over you with a godly form of jealousy. That Paul calls, and he says that I've got a jealousy, and it's a jealousy that's after a godly manner. Now, typically, we think of jealousy as being something that's wrong, something that's sinful. We were not supposed to be jealous. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments is that you shall not covet or be jealous of anything that is your neighbor's. But God says in his word that he is a jealous God. And Paul says here that he's jealous after a godly manner. And so it stands to reason that there is a type of jealousy that isn't sinful, but rather is characteristic of holiness. And that jealousy is not a jealousy of a person that is wanting something that they have, but rather it's a jealousy for a person. And that means wanting the best for them. And so you're jealous for something for that person, not jealous of that person. And so Paul says here that I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. Now, let me ask you, what does God, who loves his people, want for his people? God wants uninterrupted and unrestricted fellowship with his people. He wants there to be no middleman, no barriers, no separation between him and you. That's what he wants. He wants you to be aware of his presence. He wants you to hear his voice and sense his leading. He wants you to know his love for you and his comfort for you. He wants you to know his promises and he wants your faith to be strong enough that when you call upon him in those things, that you're not standing in doubt of his love for your life, but that you're standing secure in it. God also wants for his people, each of us, he wants freedom. 
And that freedom comes in a lot of ways. He wants the freedom of redemption. That is that we've been set free from this sinful flesh that kept us from him for so long. And God wants us to know the freedom that it is to experience that. He also wants us to know the freedom of, of, of just freedom in life or called liberty in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 where it says that it is for freedom that he has set us free. I mean, he didn't free us from sin so that we could become slaves to something else. But he freed us so that we could be free. And he wants us to know freedom from guilt, which is a known separator. And he wants to have us to have freedom to enjoy him, freedom for him to move within our lives. He wants us to know his freedom. He also wants us to know joy and gladness. That's something that God wants for every one of his people. In Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about Jesus and how it says that, that God has anointed him with the oil of gladness above his fellows. And, and the reason why is because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And so God wants for our lives, he wants us to be clean spiritually because he knows that that chasteness is going to lead to a joyfulness. And so it's a desire. That's part of his will for us. He wants us to know spiritual chastity or cleanliness. He also wants us to have a clarity in our understanding on every level. Not only does the Bible tell us that God is love, but the Bible tells us that God is light. And what light does is that light reveals. It reveals our surroundings. It reveals an environment or a situation. It gives us perspective and understanding. It's what light does. It's why we appreciate it so much. And God wants to be light within our lives. And so he wants us to know truth from error and to be able to discern the two things. He wants us to know right from wrong. And he wants us to be able to see clearly what's going on in the world around us and in our lives to have that right perspective. All of those things are things that God wants for us because he loves us. That's his will for every single one of us. It's universal. Thus, someone who is jealous for God, meaning they're jealous in God's place, their desire is going to be that they want for your life the same thing that God wants for your life. And so if someone is jealous for God on your behalf, then that means that they want for you all of those same things that God wants for you. And that's what Paul says about himself here in this text. He says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy, meaning that what drives me is that I want for your life the same thing that God wants in your life. At the end of that verse, or in the middle of that verse, and then into the end of it, he, he, he says a strange thing about his own ministry. It's the only time that he says this about his ministry. He says that I have espoused you unto one husband, Christ, that I might present you as a chaste virgin to him. The title that Paul is referring uh, to himself as in that is what would be known in that culture as the friend of the bridegroom. And John the Baptist actually used that phrase specifically. He called himself the friend of the bridegroom of Jesus. And the purpose of that person, the friend of the bridegroom, is that they would be uh, usually a male uh, person that was close to the family, that was intimate with both the bride and the groom. And, and they would serve as sort of a godparent type uh, place 
and their, their, their responsibility toward the bride would be, first of all, to make sure that she was prepared to be married to the person that she would be marrying. That person being intimate with both of them, he would be able to school her on what it would be like to be married to him. The second thing that he would be responsible for is educating the bride, making sure that she was uh, fully equipped for that marriage in every way that she would need to be. And that was more necessary than, than other times in certain places and things, but that was part of the role of the friend of the bridegroom. And then third, his responsibility was to see to it that the bride remained pure all the way up until the day of the wedding. And so that was the role of the friend of the bridegroom, the preparation, the education, and then the purity of that bride that she would be presented as a chaste virgin on the wedding day to the man that she was going to marry. And Paul says, that's the role that I have taken as the apostle that founded the church there in Corinth. I have espoused you to one husband to Christ, and I want to present you to him as a chaste virgin virgin. That's the desire uh, of my, my heart for you. And so thus, therefore, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. I want everything for you that God wants for you. That's what drives my life. Now, if that's true about Paul, or if that's true about any Christian leader, whether it be an apostle or a pastor or a teacher or a leader in a church or a leader of Christians or a leader of a family, if that's true, that that person is driven by wanting in the life of the people that are being led the same things that God wants within those lives, then that's going to look like something. And what it's going to look like, first of all, is that every bit of influence that that leader has will be used to influence that person towards Christ. Because that's what the leader wants. That's what I want for you. I want you to have everything that he has for you. And so I'm going to use every bit of my faculties as a leader to bring that to you, to bring that to bear upon your life, to, to influence you on his behalf. It's also, <laughs> excuse me. It also means that my reputation as a leader or that leader's reputation is completely meaningless except in the proper representation of Christ or unto the proper representation for Christ. Meaning I don't care as a leader or that leader doesn't care what you think of me. I don't care as long as I'm representing myself as a servant of his. If I'm conducting my life in that way and I can answer at the end of the day that I've done nothing to violate his will for my life or his will in your life, then whether you like me or not doesn't matter to me. Whether you like what God's asked me to do, whether you like the way I say what he's asked me to say, that, that's irrelevant to me. It doesn't matter because I'm interested in what he wants for you, not what I want for you. The third thing that's going to be true uh, in that life is that titles positions and status will not matter at all. And the reason that they won't matter at all is because in the grand scheme of what is going on in the situation, they don't matter. If my job is to connect you with Christ, then what my title is or what my position is, any of that completely irrelevant. I do what he's asked me to do. And as I faithfully do that, his objectives are going to be accomplished. So none of that should mean anything to me. 
Fourthly, if that's true, I'm going to be constantly encouraging you or that leader is going to be constantly encouraging you in the love of the one that you're espoused to. Constantly seeking to draw you closer to him, to encourage you that he loves you, that he's for you, that he's not against you, that his promises towards you are yes and amen, that the future and the hope that you have in him is secure and that it's sure and that you can stand upon his word. And then finally, it's going to mean or it's going to look like that my allegiance or that leader's allegiance, Paul, the one speaking here to him, of course, that their allegiance is to him and they look to him to be the one who supplies their needs. Now, if a leader represents those things, then the result of that is that the people that he's leading are going to know the love of God in their lives. They're going to be secure in that love. They're going to be growing in love toward him, meaning they're going to want to know him more and more, and they will be. They'll be growing in his freedom, and they'll have his fellowship within their lives. That's going to be the result of that kind of leadership. And that was the kind of leadership that Paul brought to them. Now, the threat that the Apostle Paul is addressing and the reason for this section of this letter is that there was a group of men that had come to Corinth claiming to be apostles who had taken the reins of leadership in Corinth, who had a completely separate set of desires for the Christians and for the church that was there. They were not jealous on behalf of God and wanting for the people the things that God wanted for their life, but that they had their own set of ideals and things that they wanted for the people, and those were the things that they were serving. Now, what did these false apostles want? They wanted, first of all, influence over the church. They loved exercising the power of their authority and using it to manipulate people to get them to do what they wanted so that they could fashion and form the church according to their desires. They also wanted to be had and held in reputation and honor among the people. They loved hearing their own name. They loved that their reputation was going out and that the people would speak well of them constantly and that was what drove them. They also wanted positions of authority. They were given to the rank and the file and the order of who was on top, who was number one and who was number two and what is your title and position. And then finally, they wanted also financial gain. They wanted to use their positions within the church in order to provide a living and often beyond a living to enrich themselves at the expense of the people that they were called to serve. And those were the people that had come into Corinth and those are the people that Paul is warning the Corinthian Christians against. Now, if a leader over a church is driven by a desire for those things, influence, reputation, authority, money, if those are the things that are driving the will of a leader, then what that leader is going to do, in contrast to what we see in the Apostle Paul, is that that leader is going to have to convince you that you need him or her. That somehow your faith is incomplete unless you have, unless you're privileged to have the leadership of that person. And thus they have a connection to God that you can hope to have, but that you don't have. They have knowledge and a source of knowledge that you don't have and that you no longer just need Jesus 
And he is no longer just sufficient to be the one who paid for your sins and is the lover of your soul and the Lord of your life and your shepherd. Now you need that person to represent God on his behalf for you because you're not strong enough or able enough to know and enjoy him for yourself. He's also going to have to teach you that if you just reach just a little bit further, if you try just a little bit harder, if you pray just a little bit more, if you repent just a little bit harder, if you do and work just a little bit more, then you'll finally have or you'll finally become worthy enough to have what God wants for your life. And they're going to get you on that kind of a trip and get you moving in that kind of a direction and path because it makes you dependent upon them. They're also going to keep your eyes on the value of the minister. They're going to say things and do things in such a way that subtly, and that's a key word, it's going to come up in the text in just a moment, that subtly make you a connoisseur of ministries and a connoisseur of teachers. Wherein the delivery and the method and the means and the approach and the style and the emotion and the sway and the feeling of things, that that becomes the power of the church gathering together, of the ministry that that person is bringing into your midst. And in a very subtle way, you'll begin to compare teachers or speakers or leaders or pastors amongst one another and and create a system of evaluation of rank and file wherein this one is better than that one, but it's based completely upon outward things, not so much on the substance of what's being brought forth. It's also going to mean that that person, because the people have become a source of income, they're going to have to make money a main and often emphasized theme. It's going to have to come up all the time, and it will. You'll see it happen. And then finally, that person is going to have to make it a regular part of their ministry to slander other ministers in other ministries. Because the only way that they can stay in the position of elevation that they want to be in is in order for them then to cut down other ministries in the minds of the people that are following so that that leader is always somehow just a little bit better than all the other leaders. And that's going to be the method of someone who isn't serving God's purposes in the ministry, but is largely serving their own purposes. Now, when a leader does that, The result of that in the congregation or in the people that are following that leader is going to be that they're going to, first of all, be brought into bondage. Excuse me. (coughs) Okay, we'll pick up there next week. No. We'll fight. There's going to be bondage. You're no longer free in Christ, but you need that minister. There's going to be a false hope that you can somehow attain to something that you'll never be able to attain to with all of your effort and all of your doing. There's going to be a vain pursuit to become something that you can never ultimately become apart from just simply trusting in Christ. There's going to be confusion in your mind as to what it is that you're doing or why it is that you're following or what is this whole faith thing all about. Everything becomes fuzzy. You're always going to feel somewhat inadequate just a little bit outside of acceptable, even though I know in my head I'm accepted, in my heart I feel like I'm just not there yet. And you will live in a state of joyless defeat 
and a constant feeling of separation from God, knowing that his blessing is just one day away or one more work away or one more prayer meeting away, one more thing that I have to do at the bidding of these leaders in order to have what he wants for me. And the Apostle Paul could see the writing on the wall in Corinth that that was the effect that these leaders were having over the Christians that were there. And it pained Paul to think of losing Corinth in this way. To see a church that knew Jesus, to see a city that had been affected by the Spirit of God, to see people that had been set free from idolatry and from deep, gross sins, and not saved unto religion in in an outward show of it in their lives, but rather saved unto the freedom of his love at work fully expressed within them, and now under the influence of these false apostles to see that diminishing, that level of freedom and love, and giving way to now just a religious, competitive, outward deadness. And Paul was scared. And that's what he says in verse 3. He says, for I fear. He says, I'm afraid lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. He reaches into the Old Testament book of Genesis, into the original fall of man at the hands of Eve and then Adam. And he uses it as an illustration of what was taking place at the hand of the false apostles there in Corinth. He says, I fear that even as the serpent deceived Eve through his subtlety, so you also are being deceived and turned away from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. How did Satan deceive Eve? He came to her in the appearance of all righteousness. The beautiful serpent. It wasn't at that time something that was creepy and to be feared, but it was the most subtle and the most beautiful of all the creation of God. Ezekiel chapter 28 describes it there as being crowned with beauty. There was something so glorious and majestic about the way Eve was approached. And she was immediately caught off guard by what she saw. There was something there that was enticing about it. And then he came to her and very simply questioned the word of God. He said, hath God said? And then when she replied to his question, hath God said that you may not eat from every tree? And she said, oh, we can eat from the tree, but the tree of life, we can't eat of it, nor shall we touch it lest we die. Then after challenging the word of God, he contradicted the word of God. He lied and said, you shall not surely die. He contradicted it. And then piquing her interest and drawing her in through the mind, as Paul says here, lest your minds be corrupted, He said, God knows that in the day that you eat it, you'll be like him. He maligned the character of God. He's withholding something from you. And if you eat it, then you'll be just like he is, which is something that he doesn't want for you. But I want something so much better for you than what he wants for you, Satan said. That if you would just abandon his way and do things this way, then you'll have something that God will never give to you. And Eve was enticed by his cunning, slick words, by the appearance of what she saw, and by a desire that he put in her heart that wasn't there previously. And the result of it is that she ate, then gave to her husband, and he ate and brought the curse upon mankind. 
And Paul says, in the same way that the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtle craftiness, these false apostles are having that same effect upon you. Through their outwardness, through their slickness, through their ability to pull things off and work a crowd and work an audience, through their manipulation of words, through their ability to slander in such subtle ways, they're moving you away from the simplicity of the gospel of Christ and turning you to complicated things that are actually serving to separate you from him. It amazes me how simple the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. I mean, think about it. Jesus said that even as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent on the pole, that whoever would look at it would be healed, so also the Son of Man will be lifted up. And the gospel of Christ is so simple that Jesus said, I have taken your place in judgment and death, and if you'll look to me by faith, and if you will let me take your sin upon my cross, and you'll let me give to you my righteousness that I purchased through my life, and you'll come to me in humility and asking, I will impart to you eternal life. That's a simple gospel, isn't it? The Bible says that it is by grace that we've been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, but that it is the gift of God and not by works lest anyone should boast. It's a simple gospel. And not only then are we saved by that simplicity of faith and just believing and trusting in Jesus, but then we're kept by that same faith. Paul would write to the Colossians and he would say that as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. That is, in the same manner that you got saved by faith, trusting in him, that's the way to walk as well. When you have a need, ask. When you're stumbled by a sin, bring it to the cross and ask God for his power to set you free within his life. When there's something going on, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. You can trust the simpleness of the word of God. You can stand upon what he said and you can know that he loves you because Jesus said it is finished. There's nothing that we can add to what he's already done to make him love us more or accept us more or to do something more for us. It's simple. And anytime we make it complicated by making it more than what it's to be, or we make church more complicated than what it is, or we put a leader in between us and him, or think that we need some form of special knowledge or some form of special ability in order to receive from God what he wants for our lives, we have been deceived from the simplicity of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse four, for if he that comes, and that's what an apostle is, is one who comes, preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached. Did you know that there is another Jesus? There's a lot of things that can be named Jesus, isn't there? If I wanted, I could sit up here and I could tell you that my name is Jesus. But is my name Jesus? No, it's not. And <laughs> There are some that purport that there is a Jesus that is a good man and that he is a prophet. There are some religions that accept Jesus as a good man and as a prophet. But that's not the Jesus that the Bible puts forth. The Jesus that the Bible puts forth is not a good prophet. The Bible, the, the, the Bible Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is Savior and God. And that's a vast cry difference from someone who is simply good and a prophet. He is the savior of mankind and he is God, our savior, more specifically than that. And Paul says, if someone comes preaching a different Jesus whom we have not preached 
or if you receive another spirit, which we have not received or which you have not received or another gospel, which you have not accepted, then you might well bear with him. Now, another spirit would be the spirit of the letter. Paul said in Romans chapter eight, verse one, it says that the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And the spirit of legalism or the spirit of bondage or the spirit of, uh, of needing a mediator or a priesthood or something to go to God is a different spirit than the Holy Spirit that now lives within the heart of the believer that brings us immediately into the presence of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that he has broken down the wall of separation that was between us and he made of the two one new man. That in Christ Jesus, there is no longer a need for a mediator. We are one with him. That's the spirit of Christ that we've received. And any other spirit is a lying spirit. But any other gospel, a gospel that adds something to what's been finished through Jesus Christ upon the cross is a different gospel. And Paul says, you might well bear with it even in that. Um, The glory of the new covenant that you and I are a part of, the New Testament, as it's called in the Bible, is that it removes every middleman and every possible separation between the Christian and God. Every law, every ritual, every achievement or attainment, every bit of our own worthiness, church membership, sacraments, denominations, leadership, all of that is put aside and we are one with Christ and him alone. There is one way to God and that's through Jesus and his cross. There is one way to deal with the issues in our lives and that's through Jesus and the cross and through prayer. And all of that finds its foundation in faith alone and in nothing else. And anything else, anything that finds its root in anything else other than that is another Jesus, another spirit or another gospel. And if a person is moved away from the simplicity of Christ in that way, then what's going to happen in their life is that they're going to lose the glory of what the new covenant provides. And they're going to lose the experience of his spiritual power at work within their lives. And they're going to become joyless and stagnant and without growth. That's what's going to happen. Your your Christianity, your progress is just going to stop. And you'll coast and then you'll backslide and you'll become confused, and you won't know why you're doing what you're doing. And then Paul begins in verse 5 now to compare himself. And this is the foolishness that he asked them to bear with. He's going to compare himself with those false teachers. He says, For I suppose that I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. In other words, you, you guys all know who Peter and James and John are, the chief of the apostles, the inner circle that were with Christ. But Paul says, I know for a fact that when I was in your midst, I didn't fall behind them even one bit in anything that I brought to, to the ministry there. I preached Jesus and I brought the spirit and I preached the gospel in a way that is is as equivocal and as full of power and as effectual as even the very chiefest of the apostles. He says in verse six, but though I be rude in speech, meaning not skilled in speech, Paul was not an eloquent man, yet not in knowledge. I don't come behind at all in my knowledge of God or in my knowledge of the ways of God. 
but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. You have examined our lives. You've seen our ministry, both in the way it's practiced and then also in the outcome and what's produced because of our ministry. We've been fully manifested unto you. Have I committed... (coughs) Excuse me. Have I committed a sin or an offense in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? One of the criticisms that the false apostles were bringing upon Paul is that he wasn't legit because he didn't receive a salary from the ministry. Now, why do you think they said that? Do you think it was because they really thought Paul was not legit? Or do you think it was because they wanted to make sure that their income continued? Paul says, was it a sin for me to not take wages from you while I was there, but to have preached the gospel to you freely? He says, I robbed other churches, not literally. He didn't hold them up and steal their tithe box off the back wall. It's figurative. He says, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them in order to do you service. He's talking about the churches from Macedonia, Philippi, and Thessalonica, the churches that were in poverty. He received offerings from them, and he used the money that they gave to him to support himself while he was in Corinth because he had purposed that he wasn't going to take any money at all from the Corinthians. Paul says, I robbed other churches while I was there among you in order to make sure that I didn't take anything from you. And he says, and when I was present with you and wanted or lacked, I was chargeable to no man for that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And in all things, I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you. And so will I also keep myself. Now, Paul, in other places that he went in his missionary journeys, he did receive wages from churches. But when he was in Corinth, he had purposed in his heart that he wasn't going to receive any support from them at all whatsoever. And you ask the question, you say, well, why is it that he wouldn't do this? Why wouldn't he want to take wages from the church in Corinth when he felt fine doing that in other places and, and condoning it when he wrote to Timothy and to Titus uh, and in other, uh, other places within the Bible? Why didn't he do it in Corinth? Well, in verse 9, he tells us that part of the reason is because he didn't want to be a burden unto them. He didn't at any time want them to feel that part of their responsibility as Christians was to support their leader. That was something that was important to Paul in the region of Corinth, and and he held himself to it. He said, I'm not going to burden you with having to take care of my needs. I'll supply for my own, whether it be from other churches or whether I put on my apron and build tents while I'm here. Another reason it tells us in verse 10, he says, as the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Achaia was that southern portion of Greece where Corinth uh, existed there. And Paul just decided, he said, I'm just going to make it my aim, almost a challenge to myself that I'm going to supply my own uh, living while I'm here. I purposed it and no one's going to take that away from me. In verse 11, he gives another reason. He says, why? Because I love you not? God knows. He, part of the reason that Paul wouldn't take wages from them is very simply because he loved them. And the love gives. The words of Jesus are that it's better to give than to receive. And Paul wanted part of his demonstration of his love towards them to be that he didn't take anything from them. And then in verse 12, he gives the last reason. He says, but what I do, 
that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. Part of the reason that I'm not taking any wages or never have from your church in Corinth is as a witness against the opposition. So that when those false apostles come to you and tell you that you should be supplying my ministry, that my example to you is that a true leader will never do that, never put that upon you as a requirement. And he says, and so they should be found even as we are. Let them do what I did if they say that they are valid as I was. And then he gets real clear what he thinks about these guys in verse 13. He says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. So these guys, Paul says, there is nothing legitimate about their ministry at all whatsoever. They are completely false. Their guise is deceit and they've transformed themselves into apostles. God hasn't made them apostles. They've made them apostles. And no marvel. For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Now that's, a, that's a, an amazing concept and truth to think about. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. Did you hear what Paul just said there? He said that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, which means that when Satan comes to someone and seeks to tempt them or seeks to deceive, he never comes as the evil devil in a red suit and a pitchfork or or with a face of darkness or fills the room with a feeling that, that, that makes your hair stand up on your back so that you just feel like you're surrounded by evil. He doesn't do that. He's smarter than that. When Satan comes to us, he comes as an angel of light, meaning that what he speaks will be 98% true, meaning that the way that you feel around him will be 98% right, that there's something about it that's so supernatural and so incredible, so wonderful, and it will take something, a discernment that's greater than what you can discern with just your five senses in order to know the difference and know that this is not an angel of light at all, but this is actually an angel of darkness. I was thinking about this this week in this text, and I was thinking about when Jesus was tempted for 40 days of the devil. What form did Satan come to him? You know, in the movies, he's depicted as a snake and then a voice. Turn this stone into bread. You know? But think about this for just a moment. Right after the temptation of Satan was finished, It tells us in Luke's gospel that angels came and ministered unto him. Now, to the person who would be just observing that whole thing from the outside, you would not be able to tell the difference between the temptation that Satan brought and the ministry that the angels provided at the proper time. Because there would be no difference in the appearance. Jesus knew who it was that was tempting him because he knew the word of God. And he knew the will of God for his life at that time. And he discerned the presence of evil, not by what it looked like or what it felt like, but he discerned it based upon what he knew was the will of God for his life and what he knew was the word of God given to him. That's how he discerned the presence of evil, not by the senses. If we rely upon our senses to know truth from error, well, this just feels right, or it just seems right, 
or everything about this is just kind of a no-brainer type of situation, you're on the fast track to deception. The way to discern good and evil and truth and error is not ever based upon our feelings. It is always based upon the will of God as revealed in the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, for when for the time, and he's not talking to you, he's talking to them. So don't be insulted. He says, for when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the truths of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk, baby stuff, is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised. Do you see that? Their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I cannot overemphasize to you the importance of the word of God in your life, a steady intake of God's word, because in it you prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God for your life, and in that is your defense against temptation and deception. The Corinthians were in danger of deception because they weren't grounded in the truth of God and therefore they were beguiled by the subtlety of those that brought deception to them. And Paul says, I'm not surprised because Satan is good and he knows how to do it. The only defense we have is God's word, God's truth and God's discernment that he gives. He says, it's no great thing if his ministers are transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. They're deceivers. They are also deceived. Satan will be damned. They also will be as well. Very strong language from the Apostle Paul. He says, I say again, let no man think me a fool. If otherwise, yet as a fool receive me that I might boast myself a little. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. He's about to boast on himself and he's so ashamed that as a, as a Christian man and as a leader in the body of Christ that he's brought to this level that he keeps apologizing for it before he does it. Do you know that it's not fitting to boast about your own uh, credentials and your own accomplishments? The Bible says in the Proverbs, let another man praise you and not your own lips. But Paul sees it here, his responsibility to hold himself up as an example for their good, not for his own. He says, seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. For you suffer fools gladly, seeing that you yourselves are wise, a little sarcastic dig. For you allow it if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you or seize you, the word means literally to take you captive. If a man exalt himself, put himself there in the midst, and if a man smite you on the face, we use the term in the church these days, uh, a shepherd that beats the sheep, not literally uh, you know, hitting them, smiting them, but just with words, scathing words to beat the sheep, to make them just feel uh, low and degraded. You know? And Paul says, these are the marks. This is what these guys do. This is why, why it's so critical You want a leader that's jealous for the things that God wants for your life because otherwise this is where you're headed. He says, I speak as concerning reproach as though we had been weak 
That's the, the, the reproach that they're bringing upon us is that we were weak because we were not this way. We didn't bring you into bondage. We didn't treat you in this way. He says, how be it, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. And now his resume. First of all, where he comes from. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. That was part of their authority. Like We're from Jerusalem. We are authentic. We're Jews. Paul says, I've got all of that in the bag. And then he says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. There's another. He hates doing this. You get the idea? He doesn't want to be doing this. He says, I am more. And now this is it. The moment you've been waiting for. Paul's resume. Haven't you ever wanted to, to, to hear Paul list his accomplishments? The things that Paul had accomplished within his life. Notice the things that Paul uses to boast concerning his accomplishments. He says, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft or often. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice, three times, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, that's dangers, in dangers of robbers, in dangers of my own countrymen, in dangers by the heathen, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, in dangers in the sea, in dangers among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And then besides those things that are without, all of the external sufferings, he says, that which cometh upon me daily, the care for all the churches. All these other things that are externals, the things that I'm suffering, the the beatings and, and and the physical pain, but then there's the internal things that nobody else can see, and that's the genuine concern that I have for all of these Christians and for all of these churches that are constantly under attack and for all of the faces and all of the people that God has given me the privilege of leading to Christ and interacting with and seeing them grow and uncovering their gifts. The, the, the care for those things, those that come upon me daily. He says, who is weak and I am not weak. I feel the weakness of those around me that I know are going through pain. If, if they're going through it, I'm going through it. I'm feeling it with them. Who is offended or tempted or stumbling? Who is struggling or going through some kind of, a, a, of an issue and I burn not? I feel everything that the people that I'm linked with feel within my life. And nobody knows what that feels like. Not, not one person that I'm talking to, not one of those apostles, as Paul is referencing, not one of the people in court, nobody knows what it's like to carry that kind of a burden in, in, inside of them the way that I've got it. He says, but if I must needs glory, he says, or, or boast, then I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. Now that's amazing to think about. Here's Paul, the opportunity of a lifetime to talk about the churches that he's planted, the dead that he's raised, the leprosy that he's healed, the miracles that he has seen done, the multitude of people that have prayed prayed with him to receive Christ. 
the deliverance, all of, all of what Paul has done that could establish once and forever his authority as an apostle greater than all the other apostles. And yet what he chooses to boast upon is not any of those things. He doesn't mention one of them, but rather he mentions only the things that serve to highlight his pain and the difficulty and the perseverance that he's exercised in fulfilling the ministry that God has given to him. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knows that I lie not. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desirous to arrest me. And through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. Now, why does Paul mention this as he closes out uh, the chapter in this thing? Here's why. Because that was the very first thing that happened to Paul after his conversion. He was led by the hand, a blinded man, by a man named Ananias into the city of Damascus where he received his sight. And it was from that same city just a few days later that he was lowered down the wall from uh, in a basket because the, the governor decide, desired to arrest him uh, because of his testimony for Jesus Christ. What's the point? When Paul first got saved, he was told, you're going to suffer great things for my name. And what Paul is communicating to these Corinthian Christians is he's saying that even as God said it, it's been the story of my life since day one. I have endured great trouble. And if you think about it, that is the greatest and highest qualification that the Apostle Paul could hold up for the legitimacy of his ministry amongst these people. Talking to them about the fact that he's still doing what he's doing in spite of all that it has cost him to do it. It's the mark of Paul's high love that he had for the Corinthian Christians. Why, why would Paul go through this? Why would Paul go through and, 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 and take and, and allow all of these things to happen? And why, the greater question perhaps as we close, why would God allow it? Why would God put it upon his servants to go through such incredible things of suffering? Now, I don't know about you, but you know, I look at Paul's list and I, I, I haven't gone through those types of things. You know, being beaten, you know, I can't like open up the, and, and show you the scars as he could in that kind of a way. But the fact of the matter is that every single one of us is subjected to the difficulties that this life brings, whether it be by the form of persecution or whether it just be circumstance, the rain falling upon the just and the unjust, or whether it just be life or the curse or, or genes, bad genetics, whatever it is, we all go through the things that we go through. And sometimes we say, why? Why, God, do you allow such suffering in your servants, especially someone like Paul? There's a couple of, of reasons. The first is the witness that it gives to the outside world of the reality of his love and power in the life. I mean, why would someone endure these things unless they're affected by him? Paul would say, the love of Christ constrains me. Another reason is because it's in the trials, not in the triumphs in life that deepen our experience with God. It's not in the, in the easy times that we experience his grace, but it's in the difficulties. God has reserved for this life what can be known of him through pain. When we get to heaven, there'll be no pain. There'll be no difficulties. But there are things to learn of God and to know of God through the pain and through the difficulties that we suffer. And to miss those difficulties means to miss those things that God wants to teach us of his grace and of his goodness in our lives. 
Another reason God allows it is because without knowing the pain that this world produces, it is near impossible to help those that are in need. It's when we feel the infirmities and the things that other people feel that we are able to sympathize with them and to bring comfort to them in the way that God has comforted us. Another reason, and it's for the true Christian, is because suffering for the cause of Christ is counted as a privilege and not a setback. When you read in the book of Acts, whenever there was a group of people that were beaten or treated roughly or severely for the name of Christ, In every instance, it says that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And there's one more reason, but it's in chapter 12. And so we'll have to pick it up next week when we carry on uh, with our study. And Paul will continue in this theme, talking to us about the things that he suffered. And so the musicians can come. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Did the musicians go home? I know I went a little long, but it's not that late. I guess I'm closing the service tonight. You're in for a real treat. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. When the truth of that verse makes its way from the head down into the heart, and the love of God truly becomes a reality, and you know how much it is that God loves you, what we were and what we deserved versus what we are and what we are in Him, who He is making us to be, that love has an effect upon our lives. It makes sense of things. The world and the kingdom come into clarity. They begin to make sense. Life and death make sense. Dark and light make sense. Lost and saved make sense. Time and eternity make sense. And value and what is valuable and waste and what is waste makes sense. And to live for him, to give my life to living for him is what makes sense. To live for anything else is a waste because everything else is going to perish. Nothing else is going to last. Everything is of inferior quality to what we have in him because his love is the greatest substance in the world. And for the Apostle Paul, the saddest thing that could happen to a person or to a Christian and what he feared for the church in Corinth is that they would live the Christian life but that they would forget why they're living the Christian life. It's all just a form. It's all just rituals. It's Sunday, go to church. It's Wednesday, go to prayer. It's wake up in the morning and have another devotional time. It's say praise the Lord and hallelujah. But to have lost the sense of what really matters, the love of Christ demonstrated through his son Jesus dying on the cross, manifested through the presence of his spirit being shed abroad in my heart moment by moment being enjoyed and experienced through his reality with me, in me, now, all the time. And to miss that and trade that for something else is to die while you yet live. Be careful who you follow. Don't lose sight of the main thing. Keep Jesus as the center. Amen?
Amen.